Welcome to week eight of 60 Weeks, 60 Books. I cannot believe that we are already two months into this project. However, the first major milestone will be moving from my first decade of books in a couple of weeks into the teen years. For now, let's take a look at Ballet Shoes. The book that made Noel Stretfield's name was published in June 1936, won the Carnegie Prize, and is still a firm children's favourite. One of the things that propelled this podcast was listening to Backlisted, the podcast with a great tag of giving new life to old books presented by John Mitchinson and Andy Miller. I am a particular fan of Andy's book, The Year of Reading Dangerously, which came out in 2014 and helped me through a reading slump. And I'm a general fan of his as I met him through Manx Litfest, the Isle of Man Literary Weekend, which takes place most Septembers, COVID permitting. Andy was an amazing guest. He worked extremely hard that weekend and was very good company. On Christmas Day this year, as we drove about a sodden, rain-whipped Serra do Cipo in Minas Gerais, I listened to the backlisted episode about ballet shoes, a book that was new to John and Andy, but much loved by their guests. They did a great job, but I think they left quite a bit unsaid about the incredible power of this novel. I don't remember when I first read Ballet Shoes, mainly because since then I've read and reread it so often that it feels absolutely embedded in my memory. There are moments when the heroines have colds or flu in the book, and when I too have been suffering, it is a complete comfort to retreat to bed and reread it. The book is set in the interwar years. It opens with the three fossil sisters living on the Cromwell Road, at the end of it which was furthest from the Brompton Road and yet sufficiently close to be taken to see the dolls' houses in the V&A every wet day. The three girls are not blood relatives. They have been collected by Great Uncle Matthew, known as Gum, an explorer and fossil hunter. Initially, he had bought the Cromwell Road house with large rooms, six floors and a basement to store fossils, leaving his niece, her daughter and Nana the nurse to care for the house when he was off on expeditions. The first child to arrive is Pauline, who Gum rescues when his liner is struck by an iceberg sometime in 1920. Followed a year later by Petrova, who is the orphan daughter of two Russian emigres. Then, when Pauline is nearly four and Petrova 16 months, Gum sends Posy, the baby of a recently widowed ballet dancer who can provide her with nothing other than a pair of ballet shoes. Gum's covering letter tells Sylvia, his great niece, that he has left enough money in the bank to run the house for five years as he is heading off on a long voyage to some strange islands, but he will be back before the end of the five years. The children begin having a pretty conventional life until Posy, the youngest, is nearing six, the age when she normally would start school. But Gum's money is running out. So Sylvia has to withdraw all three children from school altogether and they take in boarders. It is the boarders who change everything for the children. There are five. Mr and Mrs Simpson, on leave from running a rubber plantation in Malaya, as it was then, 
Dr. Jakes and Dr. Smith retired academics, one a Shakespearean specialist, the other a mathematician. And finally, Miss Theo Dane, a teacher at the Children's Academy of Dancing and Stage Training. One afternoon, the two doctors and Theo visit Sylvia. The doctors offer to teach Pauline and Petrova, with Posy joining them when she is a little older. And Theo tells Sylvia that the children can go to the academy where she teaches for free, as when they are trained and able to start working at 12, the, ac- uh, the academy will then take a small percentage from their earnings. Sylvia is initially rather horrified by the thought of the children going on the stage, but Theo and the doctors, and then the normally reliable Nana, all remind her that the girls will need to earn their own living. And this way, they will have useful skills. Pauline and Posy take to the academy at once, but Petrova, who loves cars, maths and mechanical things, finds it all a bit of a bother. However, she knuckles down. Once trained, the girls will be able to start working from the age of 12 and they all want to help Sylvia. The main part of the book focuses on the children until they reach the present day of 1936, when Pauline is 16, Petrova 15 and Posy around 12. By this time, Pauline has established herself as an actress, working in several big Shakespearean productions and a film which brings her real recognition. Petrova has been working steadily, but more importantly, has been helping Mr Simpson in his garage, which he opens when his job back on the rubber plantation falls through. And Posy is clearly set to become a ballet dancer. The children work exceptionally hard and there are complications. The minutiae of making sure that they have the right clothes for auditions, Pauline's swelling head as she is a great success in a production of Alice in Wonderland, and her inevitable fall from grace. Petrova's budding alternative world as a mechanic while wrestling with her desire to make money to help the household and her reluctance to act and dance. And all the while, gum remains away without leave. As with Paddington, one of the charms of the book for me was its depiction of London, a city which was soon to become my home as my parents divorced and my mother moved there when I was nine. I knew the Cromwell Road, Harrods, Bloomsbury, where the Academy was based. I knew the tube ride the girls take daily from Gloucester Road to Russell Square. But more than that, I loved all three girls. Pauline and Petrova are depicted most strongly, one fair, the other dark, one poetic, the other mathematical, one adoring the uh, the stage, the other loathing it. Posy is mainly comic relief, but underlying her jokes is her burning determination and dedication to dance, a sense that she absolutely knows her own mind, has a clear destination and direction of travel to that place. The Fossil Sisters are three of the most driven, gritty, resilient children in fiction, and their world feels absolutely real. 
From the matter-of-fact way the doctors and Theo point out to Sylvia that the girls must be raised to be independent and self-sufficient, to the hoops that Nana must go through to find ways to make sure the girls are properly turned out as they grow out of their audition clothes, the nuts and bolts of running this huge house, of whipping up a dress, of changing tyres and preparing rooms for boarders are the matter-of-fact backdrop for the story of the girls themselves. It is only recently that I have realised just how much this book shaped my own attitudes to work. First, like Petrova, there is the lesson that even if you don't particularly like a job, you get on with it, make the best of it, learn what you can. Second, like Pauline, when you see an opportunity, go out and ask for it. When she hears that the producer who cast her as Peas Blossom in A Midsummer Night's Dream is putting together a production of Richard III, she makes an appointment to see him, to ask to be considered for the role of the young prince in the tower. And finally, like Posey, when you see an opportunity that is absolutely made for you, go hell for leather to make it happen. The girls have agency. Ballet Shoes does not sugarcoat the competitive, driving nature of work on stage or screen, the unfairness when Winifred, the more capable singer and dancer, is made understudy and Pauline is given the role of Alice primarily because of her looks, the sheer graft of rehearsals, basic bar exercises and the harsh nature of rejection. It is seen as a girl's book because it is about dance and theatre. It is about three young women but it is a true representation of the challenges and rewards of independence, of earning your own living. The moments when Pauline announces that, aged 14, she will no longer put savings into her post office account, but use them to give pocket money to herself, Petrova and Pauline and support the house. And then later that year, when she arranges a camping holiday for the sisters, where, when as a child, I saw the power of making your own money, making your own decisions. The final line of the book is brilliant. The three sisters are going their separate ways. Pauline is heading to Hollywood on a contract, accompanied by Sylvia. Posey and Nana are going to Czechoslovakia to train with a great choreographer. And Petrova will stay with Gum, who returns just in time to decide to find a house near an aerodrome where Petrova may learn to fly. Petrova says, If other girls had to be one of us, I wonder which one they would choose to be. On this wonderful note of possibility, of agency, of adventure, the book ends. Now, my personal choice would be Petrova with her love of engines and the possibility of flight and adventure Although when I first read the book, it was Pauline, the actress, who was my inspiration. But the fundamental is that this is a classic because it is a book grounded firmly in a tough reality that still emphasises the importance of striving and working towards one's dreams. Next week, a look at the book that I read and reread so much that my parents each confiscated copies from me and the book which really instilled in me the desire to write. Join me and Harriet the Spy. Have a great week. <laughs>